This Lord's Day is part two to the sermon which we began last Lord's Day. And so our text remains Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34 for this Lord's Day. Last Lord's Day, we began our study of Christ's summary of the moral law that's found in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. We noted that one of the scribes of the Pharisees, which was an expert in the law, approached Christ with a question intended to ensnare him. That's according to Matthew chapter 22, verse 35, the idea that it, he approached in order to tempt him. The question he asked was this, which is the first commandment of all? In Mark 12:28. And you'll recall that the Lord, in His answer, did not first set out the duty of man, but rather the gracious covenant of God in redeeming man. For the covenant of grace is set forth as a preface in these words, in Mark 12:29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's a statement from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This statement of faith that I've just read is called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear, the first word that you find in that statement of faith. Hear, O Israel. And it emphasized the eternal self-existence of the one true living God and His gracious covenant with man in becoming the redeemer of undeserving sinners. Just as God began the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 with a preface declaring the redemption of His people in the covenant of grace, so likewise He begins Mark chapter 12 in verse 29 before He gets to the commandments. He gives a preface which also speaks of His redemption in saving undeserving sinners within the covenant of grace. It is only through Jesus Christ, dear ones, it is only through Jesus Christ, our mediator, who kept the law perfectly and imputes His obedience to all who receive Him by faith alone that the law can be fulfilled. It can't be fulfilled in any other way subsequent to the fall of Adam and Eve. Dear ones, the error of legalism would have you skip over the preface in Mark 12:29 and begin with the commandments that are found in Mark 12 verses 30 and 31. However, the very nature of these two commandments demands of us a perfect love toward God and man. How is that possible, you ask? It is utterly impossible in our own obedience, our own works, our own intentions, our own endeavors, our own sincerity. But the answer is to be found in embracing Embracing the promise that's found in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Jehovah, our God, is one 
Jehovah. He must not only be God, He must be our God through faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the covenant of works, beloved, the covenant of works will crush us in both body and mind under its just demand for absolute obedience. Christ here begins with the covenant of grace when applying the law, and so must we. So must we in our own lives as we claim and profess to be the children of God. The law certainly as a covenant of works has its place with those who are unregenerate to bring them to acknowledge that they need a Savior. But by the, with those who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we always begin with the covenant of grace as we consider the law of God now in the hands of our mediator. No longer in the hands of our judge, but in the hands of our mediator. Dear ones, not only in exercising faith in Christ alone for our righteousness must we, for that reason, begin with the covenant of grace. Not only in order to that, not only in order to obtain the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not only in order to be set free from the guilt and the condemnation that we deserve must we turn to the covenant of grace, but also in exercising faith in Christ in order that we might daily overcome the power of sin in our lives. We turn to the covenant of grace. Everything we need for our sanctification, not just our justification, for our sanctification is found in the covenant of grace. From beginning to end, it is all the work of God. We'll never, ever overcome sin, beloved, by merely looking at sin, by merely grieving over sin, or merely by regretting the sin we've committed. To the contrary, if that's our tact and approach, we'll be overcome with a sense of hopelessness and despair. We'll only overcome sin in our lives, dear ones, by looking in faith to Jesus Christ, who is our strength, our help, our comfort, our joy, our hope, and our righteousness. This is our only hope Beloved, in overcoming temptation and sin in our lives, looking to Jesus Christ. Now, that's not to say that we should not evidence godly sorrow over sin in our lives. It is only to say that power to overcome sin in our lives does not come from our godly sorrow. Power to overcome sin in our lives comes from Jesus Christ. And so there must be our focus alone, our faith fixed firmly upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made unto us wisdom 
and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Last Lord's Day, we covered the first point in our outline, that being the question from the scribe concerning the greatest commandment in Mark 12:28. We also began the second part of our outline, which was, and still is, the threefold answer given by Christ in Mark 12:29-31. This Lord's Day, we shall proceed to complete the second point and then proceed to the last two items from our text. The third point being the insight of the scribe is found in Mark 12, verses 32-33. And finally, the encouragement of Christ as found in Mark 12.34. So let's return to the second main point where we began last Lord's Day, the threefold answer given by Christ in Mark 12.29-31. We find these words, And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. As we noted, Christ first lays the only foundation by which sinful men can fulfill the law of God, namely, the covenant of grace. Mark 12.29 This is the answer to all forms of legalism, self-righteousness, and pride in your life and mine. Christ, our righteousness, who has fulfilled not some of the just requirements that God uh, demands of us, but all of the just requirements of the moral law Christ has fulfilled for us. But having in His infinite love and grace fulfilled all of the just requirements of the moral law for us, has He forever now set aside the law so that we have no further use of the law in our lives? Absolutely not. The moral law of God is now a rule or standard of righteousness in the hand of our gracious mediator, which directs us to the revealed will of God in order that we may know how to live and how to please Him. This is such an important point because, again, just as the preface to this particular section in uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 29, I believe, attacks the error of legalism. So what the Lord Jesus says in verses 30 through 31 attacks the error of antinomianism, that is, the spirit of lawlessness. And we, oh Lord, uh, uh, the, the Lord has given to us passages of Scripture which demonstrate very clearly the error of antinomianism. And I think we should just pause very briefly here to consider 
that there are many who simply want to be led by the Spirit. They do not want to be led by the Word of God, led by their feelings, led by their impressions, but not led by the the Word of God which has been given to us, even the commandments and the law of God which has been given to us. Jesus says in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 17, not Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Even the least of God's commandments, the least from man's perspective, those that might be considered to be the least significant amongst the moral law of God, God says his authority rests behind all of his commandments and heaven and earth will pass away first before they're fulfilled. The next passage, which teaches the abiding nature of God's law, the perpetual obligation of God's moral law, even unto us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 20. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law. Being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. Paul is simply arguing here that when he went to minister... He would go to minister to Jews. There were various ceremonial and judicial laws. He did not say, well, I've been set free from those laws, therefore I cannot for the sake of ministry and love to these people practice these particular laws. During this period of transition, where the law was being abrogated or where these particular laws were being done away, God gave his people that period of time to be able to give these laws an honorable burial because God had originally given them in the first place. Paul says that he became, in that respect, he was willing to become like a Jew in order to minister to the Jews in order to save some. But when he went to minister to Gentiles, did he require of the Gentiles what was true of the Jews with regard to the ceremonial and judicial laws? No. He says, I became to the Gentiles as a Gentile in order to win them. But did he view himself as no longer under the moral law of God? No, he says, being not without law to God, 
but under the law to Christ. Not under the law in the covenant of works, but under the law within the context of the covenant of grace, the law in the hands of Jesus Christ, the mediator. He recognized his obligation to the moral law. In James chapter 1, verses verses 22 through 25, very briefly, there we find James exhorting the believers to be not merely hearers of the word, but doers of it. And he says it's like going to a mirror and looking at one's image in this mirror and then when one leaves, forgetting what he looked like if one's merely a hearer but not a doer. And in verse 25, uh, James here says, But whoso looketh unto the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And so, specifically, he is referring to the law of God, looking at the commandments of God, as in a mirror, seeking to know what God's will is for our life, seeking to uncover various sins into which we may have fallen, to repent of them and to turn to Christ. This certainly doesn't indicate that the law of God has been abrogated, the moral law of God has been abrogated, has ceased to have any kind of binding obligation upon God's people. Quite to the contrary. The next chapter, again, James picks up the same theme in verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. So here is a commendation for fulfilling the royal law, which is to love one's neighbor as oneself. He continues, but if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, now notice what he quotes here. This comes directly from the Old Testament the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. Do not, uh, for he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. That certainly does not indicate that the law has no further work in our lives at all. Finally, in 1 John 5, 3, and we could cite many other passages, but these, I think, will suffice at this point. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. So much for antinomianism, that we are set free from the law altogether as believers. We are set, from the, set free from the law as it relates to the covenant of works. It no longer condemns us. It no longer judges us and sentences us to hell. 
We were not set free from the law in the hands of Christ the mediator. It is the standard and rule of righteousness for us and therefore we ought to love, as David says, to love and to delight in God's law. The motives which should now underlie all of our obedience are summarized in the word love. Love. The second part of the answer given by Christ to the scribe's question is found in Mark chapter 12, verses 29-30. Herein the Lord summarizes our duty with regard to all of those obligations we owe to God Himself. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. I said it's a summary of God's moral law. Summary of all the duties that we owe to God himself. And I would have you note that that a summary of a document does not annul or destroy the complete document which it summarizes. A summary doesn't render null and void the document that is summarized. Neither does this summary of the law make null and void all of God's moral law, which it summarizes. This particular commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength summarizes the first table commandments. That is, commandments one through four in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As we look at this particular verse, Let us answer a few questions about this first and great of God's commandments. First of all, how is it that love to God can summarize all of our duties to God? Is love a more lenient standard than actual performance of those duties? Well, to the contrary. Love not only encompasses the outward performance of our duties to God in word and deed, but also includes the inward motive that we must have in the outward doing of our duties. The inward motive along with the outward duty. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, it says that love does not rejoice in iniquity but rather rejoices in the truth. And so the Lord would have us to realize love does not in any way minimize our duty that's stated elsewhere with regard to God. It encompasses all of those duties, both inwardly and outwardly. Nor ought we to view love, as it's mentioned here in this first and great commandment, 
as making this in any way less rigid, less strict, more lenient at all. Love to God, dear ones, infers a desire to cherish and obey the good and holy commandments of God. As we read earlier in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Thus, when God says that love fulfills the law of God, as He does in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, in Romans 13, verse 10, and in Galatians 5, 14, God says very specifically that love is the fulfilling of the law. He does not mean that love is the destroying of the law of God. He does not mean that love is the annulling of the law of God, but rather that love is the completing, the keeping of the law of God. Not only outwardly, but inwardly, where all true obedience must begin. It must begin in our heart, with the right attitude and the right motive as we proceed to obey the Lord. A second question, what is love as it is used here in our text? What does love mean as it is used in our text? The word used here in Mark chapter 12, in both verses 30 and 31, is not a friendly attachment, as in the Greek word philia, nor is it a sensual or romantic passion, as in the Greek word eros, but rather it is a self-sacrificial giving of oneself to serve another. It is the word agape in the Greek text. A self-sacrificial love of giving oneself to serve another. For example, agape describes God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Notice in Galatians chapter 20, the characteristic of the love that is mentioned, Galatians 2.20, how does it characterize this, this word, agape, love? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, love, agape, is a giving of oneself to serve another. The same thing is taught in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, when it speaks of the love that Husbands are to have for their wives. Along with that authority that God has given to husbands, it is not a reckless, it is not a tyrannical authority, it is a loving authority. Husbands, love your wives. And here's the example. 
even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Self-sacrificially gave himself for his beloved church. So, husbands are to self-sacrificially give themselves for their wives. Certainly teaches against all, again, abuse of authority and using that authority to the profit and to the benefit of the wife. One last passage in 1 John 4.10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And how was that love manifested? And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the satisfaction, the satisfaction of God's wrath, the appeasement of God's wrath against us. He sent His Son. That's how God demonstrates His love to us. And so the idea of love, give, serve, sacrifice, and send, are found descriptively within these passages which speak of this agape, this love, this that comes from God. And this is the type of love which we are called to exercise toward our own gracious, loving God. In Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Dear ones, we are cheerfully and willingly, according to this commandment and the words that's used there, we are cheerfully and willingly to lay down our lives, to crucify our selfish desires and sinful wills in order to serve the Lord, our God, our covenant-keeping God. And that is what it means in this passage to love God. You see, when we properly understand the nature of the love we are to have for God, all pride, all self-righteousness, all self-importance is removed and is mortified in our lives. Because we see that there is no higher calling in life than to lay down our lives for the Lord our God. In other words, if the Lord, if this would be in effect the, the highest and most glorious way that a person could demonstrate their, demonstrate their love to God is to lay down their very life for Him in serving Him, become a martyr, then everything less should also be a case of sacrificing our own desires, our own wishes, our own ambitions to do what pleases the Lord our God. Therefore, I would submit, dear ones, where we find ourselves exalted in pride, in self-righteousness or in self-importance, by our own outward obedience, we can certainly see 
that love has become tarnished and blemished with self-love, a sinful self-love. This love for God that we are speaking of now alone will lead us to desire to obey the Lord in all of the other duties that we owe unto Him. If we do not begin there with examining our own heart, our own desires with regard to our affection for the Lord, everything else is going to, uh, to be uh, in vain if we do not begin with our own heart and our love for the Lord. And I would also submit to you, dear ones, that this type of love makes our labor light. It makes His commandments not grievous and burdensome, but it makes our, God's commandments a delight to keep when we have this love in our lives, for the Lord our God. Now, we've all experienced having to do things we don't want to do. Whether it's in the home or at work or wherever. And we know the experience, I'm sure most of us know the experience of doing things, not because we want to, but because we have to do something. It's not very pleasurable. We don't delight in those duties and responsibilities. But you also, no doubt, have the experience of doing something because you love the one for whom you're doing it. And that particular love so transforms this duty that it no longer becomes a great obstacle, a great weight upon your shoulders that just seems to weigh you down and crush you. But with love, that burden becomes so light that you can run to fulfill that duty. And it's the same thing with regard to our love for God. What makes our Christian life so difficult at times is that we have lost and left our first love. And in doing so, our burden becomes exceedingly heavy. Too heavy, we would say, for us to in any way carry. A third question about this commandment. Why is this love to God the first and greatest commandment? Very simply, because God is the first and greatest being. For God to command love to Himself above all else is only right and just and good for us, the best for us to love Him above every other being. He is eternally self-existent. He is infinite and perfect in all of His glorious attributes. Do you know anyone else like that? He is our Creator, our Provider, and our glorious Savior. This is why the Lord commands that we are not only to love God, but we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, we are to love Him supremely with our whole being. 
Note that we are not to love our neighbor when we get to that commandment. In verse 31, we're not to love our neighbor with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thus, when family, friends, bosses, magistrates, or even ministers call us to do what is contrary to the will of God, our love for the Lord must reign supreme over all other persons and relationships in our life. The Lord Jesus indicated this very clearly in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. When he said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Furthermore, to love God implies that we love His Word. We love His ordinances. And dear ones, we love to commune with Him. We love to enjoy Him. Then we may have a very, very difficult time convincing our wives that we truly love them if we make every excuse possible for not spending time with them. The Lord is certainly not as easily foiled as our wives are. The Lord sees into our hearts. Do we want to spend time with Him? Do we desire to spend time with the Lord our God in secret worship, family worship, and public worship? You see, therein is our love manifested. Do we want and do we desire to spend time with the Lord our God? And where we fail, in that regard we all fail, None of us is perfect, obviously, in regard to love, as we will see. But where we fail, let us each one flee to the Lord to seek His mercy and grace that He would make our our love to grow. That He would take it from a, a flickering spark and cause it to become a forest fire within us that consumes us, that drives us to obey Him and to love Him above everything else. And if we have left our first love as the church of Ephesus did in Revelation chapter 2, let us repent as the Lord says, lest He come, lest He reprove and discipline us for having left our first love. Love, dear ones, not only makes our burdens light, but also brings great delight. Finally, remember, dear ones, before we move on to the second commandment, remember the priority of God's love for us rather than our love for Him. As it says in 1 John 
Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He first loved us. Let us never forget the priority of God's love for us. This love for God that God has for us, again, implies the covenant of grace and a prior faith on our parts in Jesus Christ. For love, dear ones, is the fruit of faith and not vice versa. Faith is not the fruit of love. Love flows from a heart that is in union with Jesus Christ through faith. Thus, dear ones, this love is a grace given to us, bestowed upon us, poured out upon us by God. It is never a love which we can perfectly exercise toward our God, but a love perfectly fulfilled already by Christ on our behalf and only imperfectly exercised by us toward the Lord our God in this life. Never forget that. It is a love already fulfilled in the covenant of grace through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. So everywhere where we fail in this particular duty we owe to God, Christ has already fulfilled for us. And it is our knowledge of God. And as we learn and grow in these truths, that even drives us to love God all that much more. You see, ignorance does not drive us to love God. It is knowledge of God. It is as we grow in our understanding of those truths concerning God that we should be growing correspondingly in our love for the Lord. For to know Him in all of His grace, power, might, love, goodness, and all of His attributes is to love Him. And I encourage you, dear ones, do not look to your love. Do not focus on your love if you would grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Rather, again, as we said earlier, look to Jesus Christ. Look to Christ in faith if you would grow in your love for Christ. Look in faith to Him and grow in your knowledge of Him. And you will not be able to do anything else but to grow in your love for Him. This is the first and great commandment, Jesus said. Now, the third part of the answer given by Christ to the scribe's question is found in Mark 12, verse 31. There the Lord says, And the second is like, Namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. Here we find, dear ones, the second commandment which summarizes our duty to our neighbor. 
and fulfills the second table of God's moral law, that is, commandments 5 through 10 of the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And thou shalt not covet. The Lord says that this second commandment is like the first. Well, in what ways is it like the first? Well, in these ways. It has the same divine authority behind it. Thus, it is not optional. Secondly, it has the same motive of love moving it. Thus, it refers not only to outward obedience, but to inward obedience of the heart as well. And thirdly, it is a summary of all of our duties, like the first commandment that Christ gave to us. Thus, it is not limited to simply inward intentions, but must also issue in outward words and deeds of obedience. What is the standard given by God according to which we are to love our neighbor? What does Christ say is the standard according to which we are to love our neighbor? Interestingly enough, it is love for ourselves. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Here we see that all self-love is certainly not condemned by Christ. There is an approved love for self which we are to exercise. This self-love is a love which seeks that which is truly good for oneself. Good is defined by God, of course. This is a love of self-preservation and a love for self-edification in promoting that which is truly best for us according to God's revealed will. Even our coming to the Lord Jesus Christ is motivated, dear ones, to some degree by self-love in a proper sense. For to embrace Jesus Christ alone for our eternal salvation and to escape from death and hell is truly in our own best interest. Of course, this truth can also be very easily misused, abused, misconstrued to condone all types of selfishness and self-centeredness. For example, if the faithful witnesses and martyrs of Jesus Christ from the past had exercised this sinful self-love, they would have recanted their profession of faith in Christ and in his truth in order to save their own lives. Or we might use this sinful self-love to justify our own selfishness in not sacrificing our time, our resources, or our energy in helping and assisting those who are in need. However, a proper understanding of 
self-love when it comes to our suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ or serving others should actually motivate us, not deter us. For to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ, dear ones, to sacrifice of our own time, resources, or energy in order to help others is also in our best interest. For the Lord is not forgetful for all the things that we have done in serving him and others in this life and will reward us in the life to come. So it is actually in our best interest to lay down our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. One word of caution before we move on. Love to God must always be the highest motivation for all that we do. For we must love Him, as we've already said, supremely, above all else. Furthermore, the Lord here does not give us three commandments. He only gives two commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor, but to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So actually there are two commandments that are actually given to us by the Lord. So let's not exalt unnecessarily or unwarrantably this other idea of self-love alongside the other two commandments. Thus the Lord Jesus commands, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Just as we should seek that which is truly in our own best interests, the Lord Jesus says, so we should seek the same for our neighbor. And we should self-sacrificially seek that which is best for our neighbor. Be willing to give of ourselves. For that, again, is the exact word, the same word that is used with regard to our love for God, so it is the word agape that is used here with regard to our love for our neighbor. A self-sacrificial love in which we give ourselves to our neighbor. I would hasten to say that sometimes it may actually be in the best interest of our neighbor in exercising this type of love, agape. It may be in their best interest to say no because our neighbor may be a presumptuous and demanding neighbor. And we may have to do that even self-sacrificially. It may be, in fact, much easier to say yes. But sometimes saying no may be the right response and may be the response of love. Sometimes it may be in our neighbor's best interest to correct, to rebuke, or to discipline And that, as well, may be a sacrifice we must make because it may be simply easier to simply tolerate what they're doing. Sometimes it may be in our neighbor's best interest to drop what we are doing 
though what we're doing may be important to drop what we're doing because of the nature of the problem or the need that our neighbor has. But it is always, dear ones, in our neighbor's best interest not to offend unnecessarily by our words and by our deeds, to not set stumbling blocks before our neighbor so as to lead them into sin. The nature of loving our neighbor, again, keep this in mind, is self-sacrificially giving of ourselves to promote our neighbor's best interests according to the revealed will of God. Just as Jesus Christ became a man in order to give of himself self-sacrificially for our good, so likewise we are to do with regard to our neighbors. Let us not be those who seek for reasons why we can't help our neighbor and show mercy to our neighbor, but rather let us be those who seek for reasons why we should not help our neighbor and show mercy to our neighbor. Well, who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Jesus was asked that question in Luke chapter 10. And he answered it by giving to the inquirer the parable of the Good Samaritan. And indicating that the priest and the Levite who passed by this particular Jewish man who had been hurt very seriously by thieves and robbers and left to die. That the, that the priest and the Levite who passed by and had other duties, perhaps religious duties, that they needed to perform and get to. But yet this particular duty was even more important than the fulfilling of those particular ceremonial duties. But there was a Samaritan who happened to walk by and he saw the man. And he did inquire the race of the man. You know, are you a Samaritan? Are you a Jew? What is your race? He didn't inquire of the man, what is your religion? He saw a man in need, and that particular need called him to help and to show mercy. And the Lord Jesus, at the end of the parable, he asked the question, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And the inquirer answered, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Our neighbor, dear ones, is anyone who has a need. Christian or non-Christian. Enemy or friend member of our church or not member of our church. Now, we only have so much time and we only have so much energy and we only have so much resources. Obviously, we can't, to the same degree, minister to everybody 
who has a need. And we have to be selective, wise, discerning in how we minister to others. But God help us not simply to close a deaf ear to those who cry out and have needs. God help us to do whatever we can do to minister and to help those who are truly in need. The point of this particular parable, dear ones, is that we should never draw a circle that would exclude anyone from being our neighbor. For even Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, what we're to do with our enemies. They're naked, clothe them. They're hungry, feed them. And John, the apostle, says, if we cannot love our neighbor whom we can see. He says, our brother whom we can see, but we can expand this to include our neighbor. How can we love God whom we can see? Oh, I'm sorry. If we cannot love our neighbor whom we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? First John chapter 4, verse 12. The second commandment then is this, there is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The third main point, and we will go very quickly through point three and point four, is the insight of the scribe. Look with me at Mark 12, verse 32 and verse 33. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. All I want to say here is that it appears that the words of Christ had such an impact upon this Pharisee in showing to him his self-serving motivation in performing only that which was an outward duty to God and others, that he was greatly humbled and he confessed that which the Lord had said was true, to be true. We see in this scribe, dear ones, an insight and distinction between that which is moral and that which is ceremonial. God had granted him discernment and understanding because he says that these commandments, these moral commandments, are greater than all whole burnt offerings. He recognizes that this is of a truth, the case, what the Lord Jesus has said. And so the Lord and he has given this particular scribe, this Pharisee, enlightenment and understanding to see this truth. That I want you to, to note under point three and then point four, the encouragement of Christ. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, and no man after that durst ask him any question. From Mark 12, verse 34. 
And this is what I would have you note from this particular verse. The response of the Lord is not one of putting out the smoking flax, but rather one of encouraging the scribe to continue to look to him for understanding and enlightenment. He didn't say, well, because you are not, he didn't say because you're not yet in the kingdom of God, uh, don't continue looking. He didn't try to discourage this man. Where he saw any way to encourage a person, even if they had not yet come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, he sought to encourage the man. You're not far. You're not far. But look in faith to God. Continue to to proceed along this path in recognizing these distinctions that you have made. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Certainly God must grant faith to this man, the scribe, and to everyone else before they can see the kingdom of God. He must be born again. And God must, in that regeneration, grant to each and every person faith to see the kingdom of God. But I think it is so important what the Lord says here, that we become encouragers like the Lord Jesus Christ, not discouraging people to follow Christ, but in every every way in which we can encourage their progress, that we do so. That we do so as parents with our children. That husbands, we do so with our wives and wives with their husbands. That we as ministers and elders do so with the flock. And that the flock do so with regard to the ministers and elders. That we be a church full of encouragers, as Christ was. So we will experience, dear ones, the fruit of that being love, peace, purity, and unity as we encourage one another to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us stand together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before Thee this day. We do confess to Thee that Thy Word has gripped our hearts. It has convicted us of our sin. And Father, we would not continue to merely look at our sin. We would, Lord, not merely grieve over our sin, but Father, we would do something about it in looking to Thee to forgive us and to grant to us, O Lord, that grace to overcome it. We ask, O Father, that Thou would purify our love. For, O Lord, it has become mixed with with many things that are unclean. 
much, much selfishness, much conceit, much pride. We pray, Father, that Thou would strip it and cause these, these impurities to fall away from the love that we owe to Thee and to one another. We would ask our God that Thou would ever keep our eyes upon Thy love for us foundationally as the basis for our love unto Thee as those who have been redeemed by the grace of Christ. That we would not seek to love Thee on the basis of the covenant of works, but on the basis of the covenant of grace. We ask our Father that Thou would stir up this love for one another within our families where it is so needed, where we so often take advantage of one another. We pray, Father, that we would not view our families in such a way that we would sooner take advantage of them, but, Father, that we would we would consider it such a grievous sin to do so that, that uh, Lord, we would uh, be very resistant to doing so. We ask our God that would cause our love for Thee to reign supreme above all other loves. We pray, Father, these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.